Welcome to Super Agent Podcast. This podcast strives to promote healthy aging and amplify caregiver voices while raising awareness about dementia. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Fatou Sisse. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Sonikwa Boggs. Dr. Boggs is a faculty member at the Division of Geriatrics and Gerontology within the Department of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Boggs is a member of the American Geriatric Society, the Alzheimer's Association International Society to advance Alzheimer's research and treatment and the American College of Physicians. Dr. Boggs was also the recipient of 2020-2021 UW Madison Outstanding Woman of Color Award. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Boggs. Thank you for having me as well. It's an honor to be here today. It truly is an honor to have you here. From a faculty standpoint, what does superaging mean to you? From my standpoint, I would say superaging is, first of all, just having the ability to be considered a geriatric patient, which is typically individuals 60 years of age and older, but then also having the ability to age gracefully and just live your best quality of life and enjoy each day. I would say that's super aging. Yeah, that really defines what super aging is. So Dr. Box, as a clinician specialist, that includes memory assessment and dementia and geriatric medicines. What inspired you to go into this career path? My inspirations came from a lot of my experiences, especially life experiences encountered with my grandmother. I had a pseudo grandmother that I lived with while I was in med school, which was beneficial, as well as my clinical encounters uh, when I did my geriatrics, as well as hospice and palliative care rotations. In addition to all the knowledge I've gained since being in Wisconsin for my um, geriatric fellowship, taking the time to do an additional fellowship so I could get more research exposure, all of those experiences and my encounters is definitely in the memory clinic have fostered my interest in um, aging and dementia. Okay, that's great. So personal, but also your professional experiences. Mm -hmm. That's great. We know that older age can come with challenges, both in terms of physical health, mental health, and well-being. From your point of view, as a clinician and as a researcher, with healthy aging, what does that really mean to you? And so with healthy aging, in my opinion, I would say because our bodies will change over time as we age, we move slower, things are not going to work as well. But just trying to make sure we have our numbers within those normal ranges as much as possible. And so that would mean keeping our blood pressure well controlled, uh, cholesterol levels well controlled, um, through diet, exercise, blood sugar as well, just to reduce those risk factors, especially as we get older and wiser, but also more sensitive to those changes in our body, as well as the medications that's needed to control those different disease conditions. Great. Well, thank you very much for that. 
what types of changes in the mood, behavior, and abilities that comes with age are cause for concerns? And what are there some changes that we do need not to be concerned about? And so some of the normal changes I will start with is say that occur with aging is sometimes just moving slower, uh, maybe sometimes taking longer to think of thoughts um, in conversation. But some of the more concerning changes is if these um, the changes with your thinking or your memory is starting to impact your day-to-day activities, like not being able to manage your checkbook or pay your bills on time or having trouble just keeping up with medications. Those are some changes in aging that are more concerning and mm-hmm. should be brought to a provider's attention. In regards to mood, sometimes if an individual is starting to socially isolate themselves, especially from friends or family mm-hmm. activities they typically enjoy doing, that's another subtle sign where something may be going on. Maybe they have more challenges in conversation, having trouble keeping up in conversation, thinking up the words, so they may just gradually pull back from those conversations as opposed to seeking help. Uh, So I would say those are concerning changes that occur with aging, possibly. Thank you. Thank you. To help our listeners who may not be familiar with Alzheimer's or other dementias, can you give us the basic overview of what's happening in the brain when somebody develops Alzheimer's? So just a basic overview of what happens when someone is developing Alzheimer's disease Mm -hmm. Um, is it's like you get an accumulation of these proteins in the brain that's kind of blocking the message or the communication between nerve cells, kind of similar or analogous to if you were to think about a blood vessel getting blocked with plaque. So you no longer have that smooth blood flow going through. So then you end up with dead heart tissue because the blood is being blocked. Same thing in the brain, the proteins are building up. So they're blocking the signal. So the nerves are not able to communicate with each other. So in turn, the cells start to die. So then you have dead tissue in the brain. And depending on where that area is, this dying off due to the cells not communicating, then you start having memory changes or whatever particular function that part of the brain serves, that's where you're going to be symptomatic. With Alzheimer's disease, it's those memory changes that individuals encounter. Thank you for explaining that. While we can't see what's happening or what's going into the brain, what type of changes in behavior will we see in especially with someone with Alzheimer's? So in someone with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, uh, memory is typically the most predominant symptom that they start experiencing. But as they progress in that disease process, some of the behavior changes that individuals have is they may become more agitated, could be frustrated, not being able to remember things that you know you used to know. Paranoia occurs in some individuals where they may think someone is trying to steal from them, could be family members or friends Mm -hmm. uh, when it's not actually occurring. Some individuals may start seeing things that are not necessarily there. In some of the more severe stages, you can have individuals who may um, 
become more aggressive or violent just due to the changes that are occurring in their brain. Right. And then another safety concern is wandering. Some individuals, as they progress, start to wander sometimes at night, feeling like they're just not in their own home. So they're trying to leave to get home. Right, right. Well, according to the Alzheimer's Association, um, older Black Americans or older Black people are about twice as likely and older Hispanic than white people to develop Alzheimer's. So what has been your experience in the research study exploring these important discrepancies that the prevalence of Alzheimer's among Black people or among people of color? And so with my research experience so far, especially the community outreach project that we're working on, um, one of the huge uh, the big gaps that we're noticing is, is not a lot of diversity in our dementia studies to start with, but then also thinking about those risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes that increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia. The most challenging thing is get a better understanding of what's going on. And the only way we're able to do that is by increasing the amount of diversity we have in those studies to see where those differences are among different racial groups. Yeah, I think the key there is participation in research to be able to identify issues and get a diverse perspective on research of different individuals. Experts have identified the disease on Alzheimer's affects the blood cell, and that can impair the flow, like just like you mentioned, and therefore potentially the risk of developing Alzheimer's. So with understanding the link between that is clearly an important one for people who are dealing with, let's say, high blood pressure. Do you sense that research study is adequately addressing the link, especially among population that may be at high risk? I would say, yes, I do think the research is addressing that link, especially with comorbidities that increase an individual's um, risk for getting dementia. Um, Because definitely here as well, it's a lot of research that they're doing looking at the different comorbidities which contribute to our risk of getting dementia. But then also in memory assessment clinics, those are the things we stress. Also making sure those comorbidities are well controlled to try to cut down on any reversible causes of someone presented with memory changes, like making sure their blood pressure is within that goal, making sure their blood sugar is well controlled and cholesterol levels as well. So I would say with the research studies, they're doing a good job of addressing those issues, but it's just a matter of also making sure we increase awareness to the community because sometimes a lot of people just don't know. Right. So community education is an important piece. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion includes racism and discrimination as an example of social determinants of health, stating that these can contribute to white health disparities and inequity. In your experience, What are some of the major contributing factors to health disparities and experiences in the healthcare system? 
I would say some of those contributing factors are just having access to care, uh, which creates a lot of health discrepancies. But then also when we have the resources available, actually taking advantage of those resources. And then another challenge too is when an individual presents with symptoms, because presenting later in the disease process makes it more challenging. And sometimes there's a limited amount of treatment options available at that time. So early detection and seeking help sooner is definitely a way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is clear that the importance of research includes participants from Black community being disproportionately affected by healthcare condition, including Alzheimer's disease. However, when we look at the existing clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease, participants from Black communities represent less than 5 of 5% of the participants, while representing approximately 13% of the U.S. population. In your experience and now in your research, what have you found is the major contributing factor to the underrepresentation of Black participants in clinical research? I would say in um, research, especially one of the topics we're working on now, too, with our community outreach is trust has been a huge factor um, influencing participation, especially in Black or African-American participants. But I mean, that's due to past experiences as well. Traumas, fear, sometimes just misunderstanding are some individuals just unwilling to participate in research studies. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think trust is one of the bigger yeah. factors. Yes, I agree. I agree. What steps can researchers as well as advocacy groups take to promote research participation among Black communities? I think um, more importantly, building a sustainable relationship with the community. It takes more time, but establishing that relationship first and also providing a service to the community would help increase participation, but also create those sustainable relationships so more individuals are willing to participate in future studies. And then one common theme, which I've been noticing um, through a lot of interactions with different individuals in the community, is Mm -hmm. making sure also once that research is completed, we provide follow-up to the community and present the findings from our research studies. Because some individuals feel like we do the work and then just leave and don't follow up. Right. No, I agree. And I think that that in a way will start to establish trust. So people know what is it that you're doing and getting back to them and saying this is our finding and this is next step. I think that's crucial in partnership, if you will, that you will establish between research community and communities in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So switching from the research of Alzheimer's to a more day-to-day care, what have you been encouraging your patients to do to maintain physical and mental health during this COVID pandemic? I think just mainly um, making sure they stay well hydrated, continue to stay as active as you can while still being safe. I mean, as much as they can tolerate 
um, and definitely trying to um, keep in touch with family, friends, just to maintain your overall wellness during these challenging times. So definitely staying connected and not being isolated. It's important in the process. And you mentioned hydration. Can you elaborate on the importance of staying hydrated? Oh, staying well hydrated with water, because especially yeah. as we age more wisely, dehydration can increase your risk of confusion and memory changes also. So aiming for at least six to eight glasses of water a day would be ideal but at least get in four glasses a day. That is really important. Yeah. And again, people who are dealing with memory issues, one of those, that this is one of the things that they couldn't remember to do, continue to hydrate themselves. So yeah, good point there. For our listeners who may perhaps have the feeling of comprehensively about returning to normal in this COVID pandemic, what message would you share with them today? I would say, yes, we all looking forward to that normal phase, but it just may be a gradual process. And let's all just try to continue to stay as safe as we can throughout this gradual transition to a more normal phase. Yeah, yeah. Do you have an, any older adults in your life that fits the definition of like super agent who's a super ager? Yes, my grandmother is a super ager. Okay, <laughs> and where a lot of, a lot of my interest experiences came from. And I mean, she has some memory loss, but she still looks good. She's still independent in her day-to-day activities. She stays active. And uh, most importantly, she just tries to maintain a positive, very positive outlook about life despite her circumstances. That's wonderful. And how old is she? She's 86. That's great. That's really inspiring. Mm-hmm. My final question to you, Dr. Boggs, is what do you do for self-care? that's a great question (laughs) because I haven't been doing as well as I should uh, with my self-care lately but typically I try to um exercise eat a healthy diet and um most importantly for me smiling a lot and just trying to do something that brings me joy regularly uh, those are the things that help me maintain my self-care and then just laughing a lot and just trying to make someone else's day. That is such a nice way of living a life and thinking about self-care because w- when you said smiling, I, I'm a smiler too. And I <laughs> know that that's part of self-care. Like I don't think about it as self-care. So now I can say, well, I do smile. So that's self-care. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much for being with me. It's really a treat, an honor, and a privilege to have you with us today, Dr. Brooks. So thank you. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Stay in touch. Okay. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Super Agent Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the program. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out by leaving us a comment or sending us a message via email at superagentpodcast at gmail.com or connect with us through social media. And if you haven't done so already, please feel free to subscribe to any of your favorite podcast listening sites 
Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcast and leave us a review. Until next time, remember that self-care is self-love. Take good care.